Come on, Asher. <laughs> so Psalm 51 and Psalm uh, 32 are, I have lots of favorite passages, but those are two. They're couplets. And it's basically David's penitential psalm. He um, steals another man's wife, Bathsheba, then he kills the husband to cover up the fact that he impregnated another man's wife. So he killed Uriah by proxy through Joab. And, um, and then he doesn't repent with Bathsheba for, I think, obviously, almost nine months. And then God sends a prophet to him and tells him a little story and then convicts him. And after he's convicted of his sin, he writes those um, psalms. There's no sin that we can commit that... Um, God and Christ won't forgive except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Acts 22. I'm going to read 1 through 22, and then we'll see what we're going to see. Acts 22, verse 1. Hear God's holy and perfect word. Brothers and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brothers. I started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. A certain man, Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, and standing near to me, said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him, Then he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I said, I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are our Father which art in heaven. We thank you for that. You are the Father of lights, the Father of mercies. And now, by your Spirit, we cry to Abba, Father. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would subdue my flesh and that the words of my sermon, my thoughts, my countenance, my tone, would be pleasing to you and uh, edifying to your people. Feed your sheep, Lord Jesus Christ, on your holy word. Conform us into your image. If there are any who have come into this place this morning, that even at this very moment, Lord God, they're still in their sins and they don't know you as their Savior, might today be the day of their salvation. We pray these things which are impossible for us, but nothing is impossible for you. And we pray them in your name. Amen. Well, what I want to do with this passage before us this morning is, and I've I've done this a number of times in the book of Acts, is this is obviously, it's a historical narrative of what's going on. It's the life of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaiming Christ uh, to the four corners of the earth. That's what it is. The Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of the Apostles inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Acts of Christ's Servant, something like that. And so it's a historical narrative. And in, in, in this particular section of Scripture, there's a lot here. Um, verses 1 through 22 that I took. I thought I was going to take a larger passage. And there's a little section that maybe I'll return back to where Jesus uh, says to Paul, why do you persecute me? Where he takes the, the persecution of Christians personally. It would be like for us who are husbands, I'm a husband. If someone were to abuse my wife, God forbid, I would take that as an affront to me. This is where the Bible says for us as husbands and wives, that we're one flesh. So to strike the wife is to strike the husband. And Christ says that. That would be, I think, a sermon passage I might return to. I have a basic desire for this morning's passage. And I will miss a lot here. We'll come back maybe, as I said, to, to these things. But there, there are two things I want to look at in this passage. And they're both related to one another. And as I say it, it's a super heavy passage. I woke up a million times last night thinking, I cannot preach this passage. It's heavy duty. I, I, by God's grace, pray for me that I would preach it. And I don't want to depress anyone. I want to liven, uh, 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 quicken our steps to heaven and, and uh, lighten our load. But what we're looking at here is another expression of unbelief among the Jews that Jesus is their Savior. That's what we're seeing. And so this is a repeated historical record of the Jews rejecting that Jesus Christ is their their Messiah. And when I underline their Messiah, I mean the true Messiah. Uh, And only true Messiahs truly save. There are a lot, and Messiah and Christ is the same thing. Mashiach is the Hebrew, Christos is the Greek. It just means anointed. Only the Jesus Christ of the Bible is saving. There are a lot of false Christs, Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 24. And even the Apostle John tells us that we should watch out because many antichrists are in the world. And so what we're looking at here is Jesus is being presented to the Jews over and over and over again, and they reject and they reject and they reject. The reason this passage is so heavy to me is that the application I would make is this is the household of faith. I'll use the phrase church. The Bible does use in Acts chapter 7 the word ecclesia for church, 
to Old Testament Israel, that would be another study, or you can talk to me after the sermon. So I'll refer to Old Israel as the church, because the Bible does. So the obvious application to this passage of church people essentially saying, we reject the Christ of the Bible. The application would be to people in the church, um, people who have their names on church rolls, people that are ministers, and they hear the, the biblical Jesus being presented to them, the biblical gospel, and they reject it. That's a scary thing, and we'll talk about that as we go along. So the rejection of Christ as a Messiah. The other thing that's related is the Apostle Paul's defense, and he uses the Greek word apologia, which is like a, it's a, like a, um, a legal law room defense. He's on trial, as it were. And Jesus clearly says this is going to happen to his, his disciples. These are, sometimes people think, well, I want to be a minister because I get the best parking spot or I drive a Mercedes or I eat fried chicken and play golf all week. I don't know about that. I know not in the OPC. You're not playing fried chicken with a Mercedes in the OPC. However, at this particular time, when you were chosen to be God's spokesman, this is like being God's spokesman in Saudi Arabia right now. You, you want to go preach Christ in Saudi Arabia? I don't think so. You're going to have the lifespan of a small winged insect. These are these guys. And so Jesus says in, John, in Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to send you out there. You're going to proclaim that I'm the Christ. It's not going to go that well with you. And they're basically going to do to you what they did to me, which is to say abuse you and then kill you. But it doesn't slow down the Apostle Paul because he's been called to this very thing. So the Jews are rejecting Christ as he's presented to them, and Paul is continuing to present Jesus as the true Savior. And then at the end of our passage, we're going to see that they don't got into it very much, and they want to kill him again. But it, it does not slow him down. After this passage, Paul's got three more years to live before he dies. You know, I quote this, this guy, uh, Stud is his last name, S-T-U-D-D. He was a cricketer in the 1800s. He has a poem, One Life to Live. One life to live, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Paul's not slowing down. They don't kill him at the end. So he says, until you kill me, I'm going to keep gospeling. I'm going to keep telling people about Jesus. And then finally, who will kill Paul at the end of his life? He goes to, to preach to Rome. But that's Christ's purpose. So the, the rejection of Jesus as the Christ, and then the, the continuous presentation of Jesus as the Christ. That's all I want to look at. And I have way too much here. I'll, if you're on the church email list, or you want to be on the church email list, put your name there and you'll get my sermon notes. There's enough here for four sermons, so I for sure won't get to it. So it's a topical message somewhat. I want to look at the, the immediate audience that's being preached to are Jews. Now, this is not a pejorative. I know in today's day and age we're so, I don't know, you can't even use precise words. When I say Jew, it just means a non-Gentile. In the land of my birth in Massachusetts, I was... We were the only Gentiles in the JCC. Why my father joined the Jewish Community Club, I don't know, but he did. <laughs> so we were the only Gentiles. We were called the Goyim. Im is plural in Hebrew. So we were the Goy. All it means in the, the Greek is ethnos. It means nations. It means non-Jew. So when I say Jew, it means a Jew versus a Gentile. But religiously, I want to first start, when we, when we talk about the rejection of Jesus, the Jews are aggravating, it's a sin, by the way, to reject Jesus, just so you know. And they're rejecting Jesus. But their sin is aggravated because of their religious privilege. 
So the Jews, out of all of the people on the planet, heretofore, at the time of Paul, now we're getting ready to bust out and go to the Gentiles, but from Abraham to this time, the Jews alone were God's special chosen people to have religious privilege. And what I mean is law and gospel, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. So we are going to look at the special religious, spiritual privileges of the Jews. So God gives them religious advantage. And I mentioned it this morning in the Sunday school. Jesus has this phrase. Maybe you can complete it. To whom much is given, go ahead, much is required. What that means is, if God gives you a gift or a privilege, you are, obli- you are divinely obligated, which means God obligates you to benefit from that privilege or that gift. And so rather than whining, why don't I have this or why don't we have that? J.C. Rowell, my favorite devotional writer, says we shouldn't envy the rich, but we should pray for them and weep for them. Why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. If we are poor, we're in a lower place. Less is required of us, as it were, before God. And so when God gives religious privilege, it's going to put us in a greater place of responsibility and or culpability, which means if we don't benefit from that gift, we actually make our sins worse before God. We always say, what about the poor guy in the cave that doesn't know about Jesus? That's why we have missionaries. But I will tell you this, the place of greater culpability is not the guy in the cave. It's, it's where? You guys. It's you, whether you're in this church or another Bible-believing, Christ-loving church. We have the greater degree of responsibility because too much is given, much is required. So God gives this great privilege to the Jewish people. He gives them the oracles and the ordinances of God, Romans 3, 1 through 3. Now, who's the father of the Jews? Who's the father of the Jews? Abraham. The first time the word Hebrew is used is in relationship to Abraham, and it's Genesis chapter 14. Abraham, actually at Genesis 14, he's called Abram. And Hebrew means to, uh, to cross over, to traverse over, to pass through, something like that. Uh, something like being a wandering Jew, wandering people of God. That's what it means, to cross over, Hebrew. And the word Abram means um, exalted father, and Abraham means a father of nations or father of a people, something like that. So the first time we have the word used for Hebrew is applied to uh, Abraham. But he's acting as almost a, a representative for his people. Now, sometimes it's common in our day and age to say, well, the three great monotheistic faiths, I don't like putting it that way because it would put our faith in kind of on par with other faiths, which there's only one faith, but that's, I digress from that. Um, Jews, physical Jews, will say we descended from Father Abraham. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. Not everyone that descends from Israel is of Israel. He means if you have physical descent, that's not the main import. And even the Muslims will claim descendantship from Abraham, and that's true. Both through Hagar, the Egyptian concubine, and then after Sarah dies, he marries another woman, Abraham does, Keturah. And then you have the people of the Arabs and so on, the Muslims. So they claim physical descent. But that's not the main import of Father Abraham. The main import of Father Abraham, the Jew, the man who's crossed over, the friend of God, is what? Galatians chapter 3. He is, he is the archetype believer. He is the father of those who find faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he is. 
So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you are an Israelite after uh, the, the, the Spirit. This is a Roman towards the end of chapter 2. So that we have been born again. We are sons and daughters of Father Abraham if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we were to... And I'm using the, the, the redemptive history from Abraham, the father of the Jews, all the way up to what we're looking at in Acts and saying that out of all of the people on the planet, this is God's business, he reaches down and says, you Jews are going to be my people. He owns everybody as creator, but he chooses them to be their special covenant God, their father, their husband, that kind of an idea, to set his redeeming love on them. Out of all of the people on the planet, it was the Jews. And you say, well, I don't believe it. Then you need to read Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 10. He says that he does. And why he does it is his own business. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, I'm not picking you because you're the best. Why does he pick them? Because he's the best. And why does he do it? For his own glory. And why does he choose it for his own glory? And then the ultimate answer is, don't talk back to God. <laughs> I, I don't mean to tell you that. I don't want to be like that. But that's Romans 9. When, why does God do? Why? Like my little three-year-old, three how old is my daughter? He's into now, why? Why? You know, like the grand, grandkids, why? And after like the hundredth why, you're like, please, no. That's because Pa said it. Just do it. Sometimes God just says, this is how it is. And why? 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 Because mm -hmm. I did it that way. And our response is to, to do what? Is to bend the knee in submission. So out of all of the people on the planet, and when I say he gives them redemptive benefits, I mean salvific benefits. Only the Jews, from Abraham to Paul's time, had the, had the law of God, the moral law of God codified. We could say for another day, the indwelling the law on our, on our conscience, on our soul. That's another sermon. But only they had the law. And only the Jews had the gospel typified. And what do I mean by that? I said every Sunday of my life as a, a Roman Catholic, I was raised a Roman Catholic. And the priest would say, Behold the Lamb of God who what? Take away the sins of the world. Right? And then he would say, Happy are those who call to a supper, which is from the, the Roman centurion. He added a few things. Behold the Lamb of God. Where is that? Jesus Christ is Leviticus chapter 16. He's the scapegoat. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. Exodus 11, 12, 13. That, that's what that is. So how did Abraham know Christ? How did Moses know Christ? This is Hebrews 11. How did David know Christ? Because they had the gospel in type and shadow. But now, with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jews and the Gentiles... We have the gospel in substance. Christ has come. But, but before that, they had law, they had gospel, they had the ordinances, they had the oracles, they had the sacrament. Only the Jews. Now remember, to much is given, much is required. He's going to require that they use all of these privileges. Now let's ask ourselves, with all of these wonderful gifts, did the Jews here in our passage, at the time of Christ, did they benefit from having these spiritual religious privileges? Did they benefit? Did they bend the knee when Christ came and said, here I am, and did they bless God for having the Lamb of God to cleanse them? Were they laboring with the coming of Jesus to live a holy life in thankful response to the coming of Christ? Were they? What's the answer? No. Now remember the application of all of this. 
there are many people, most people here in this room were raised in some kind of Christian home. Were you not? I know, like, when kids turn from, like, 15 to 35, they start working on the 30-page letter to write to their parents on what schnooks they were. No extra charge for this. But you're getting the letter. <laughs> if you're, like, 50 or 60, you're getting the letter. So your kid works on the letter on, on a, what a schnook you were. And I was a heathen, raised as a heathen. No, you weren't raised as a heathen. I took you to church every Sunday. I gave you a Bible. <laughs> sure, I wasn't perfect, but no one's perfect. Show me how it's done. Most people here in this room, our mothers and fathers took us to some kind of church. Am I not right? Not everybody, not my wife. They were being taken to a Hindu temple. But most people had a Bible, right? And you had a mom and a dad that was praying over you some kind of way, some kind of administration, some kind of sacrament. Am I not right? Does the better part of the church, when you look around, look at the Christian church. I'm not, this is, I'm not picking on anybody, but look around. Are professing Christians looking like, I love Jesus, I come to him for the forgiveness of my sins, and I want to live a holy life? Is that what we see? No. 73% of our country says they're professing Christians. Katie, bar the door. 73% of Americans are professing Christians? No way. No way. Not this. Not this. Not this. Tell them that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And what will the 73% tell you? No way. That's narrow. That's this. So we have all of these amazing privileges. Think of what amazing privileges. You're in America. I've said it many times. If you don't own a Bible, do not leave this church. You're getting one before you leave the room. You could go buy 100 Bibles. That's a privilege. But the privilege is not to just have the Bible. It's to use the Bible, to believe the Bible, and to believe the one in the Bible. So the Jews had these privileges, but they weren't using them. <laughs> and we're going to look at their rejection and then the representation of Jesus as the Christ. And the, again, as we say. Now, when we look at their rejection, we're going to talk about why. But let's just look at the fact that many of the Jews, prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, so they were the people of God, the Bible says they suffered from a major problem, which in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and 4, chapter 3 specifically, but we'll call it the evil heart of, you know what it is? Evil heart of what? You know? Go ahead, Victor. Unbelief. Unbelief. The evil heart of unbelief. It's in reference to Israel, which are the people of God. We just talked about that. After their liberation, how many years did the Jews spend in, in slavery? If you say 430 years, you're exactly right. So after 430 years, God emancipated them. He liberated them. Imagine being a slave slave. Not just like, oh, oh I, you know, I have to go to work and earn a living. I'm a slave. No, no, we mean real slave. <laughs> you have chains on you, slave. You're making bricks without straw, slave. For 430 years... You, your kids, and your kids' kids die as slaves. And you're begging God, oh, God, free us. And God frees you. Do you think that you would walk around and say, you know what? I am going to live for God. I believe him. I love him. They didn't make it out of freedom like a half an hour, and they're grumbling over everything under the sun, right? I'm preaching through the book of Numbers at night. Ay, ay, ay. Why God doesn't just kill the whole lot of them? Why doesn't he kill the whole lot of them? Because they're his people. And he's a loving and a gracious and a merciful people, and he's long-suffering with people that gripe. And we thank God for that. 
But the Bible says they had the evil heart of unbelief. And it's that generation that left slavery and they experienced freedom. And the better part of them were unbelievers. I just want to... Sometimes people... I have, There's a guy who sometimes comes to church. He says, Pastor, don't you think anybody's a, Christ, a true Christian? Don't you think anybody's converted? Yes, I think people are converted. Do I think the better part of the planet's converted? What do you think? What do you think? Better part of human beings, do they love Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth? Do they? What do you think? No. And I know for a fact they don't. Why? Because Jesus says they don't. Jesus says there's two roads to be on. Everybody in this room is on one of the two roads. What's the, what's the first road? It's big. It's wide. There are gobs of people on it. They're having a big old time. And the end of it is what? Hell. And then there's a narrow road. And it goes right through the cross. Who's on that? Only people that are born again. And where does it go? To heaven. I didn't write the Bible. Jesus is saying, out of the mass of humanity, most people don't believe. Only a small, small in relationship to the mass. So they were, they were not born again. But we don't mean the Hittite or the Amorites. Last night I watched a, a documentary on the Hittites. Mona's like, what are you watching? I'm like, a documentary on the Hittites. This is what people do. They watch documentaries on the Hittites when they're next to having quality time with their wife. <laughs> this isn't the Hittites who don't believe that God is Christ. Christ is God come in the flesh. It's people in the household of faith. And the Bible says in Hebrews 3 and 4, most of them were not converted. And God swore in his what? They would not enter his rest, his wrath. Beloved, I'm going to say something. God has no wrath on true believers. If you're a true lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, no wrath for you. None. No condemnation. So if someone throws your sin in your face, say, take it up with Christ. He paid for it. I'm going to heaven. No condemnation. Romans 8, 1. No condemnation. No wrath for any true believer. Wrath is only for the false professor or the unbeliever. We get discipline. But he says to the better part of the church, you're unconverted. Jesus Christ says, when the Son of Man comes back, what are people going to be like? The days of what? Like Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he doesn't mean outside of the church. It's always Sodom and Gomorrah outside of the church. He means inside of the church. When the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith? Luke 18. What's the answer of the text? Like this much. So the Old Testament prophets, they're out there preaching. The Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to come. And what did the better part of the people of God do to these people? They chopped them up into hamburger is what they did. That's what they did. Read Matthew chapter 5. That's what they did to the Old Testament. Faithful prophets. What kind of prophets did they like? They really liked these guys. Your best life now. You can be healthy. You can be wealthy. It's just peace, peace to you and your sin. And what did they say? We love this guy. And Paul says, it's going to be the same in the New Testament. You preach the, you preach the real Jesus in the New Testament epoch, you're going to have two people in a house cat, basically. You have to preach Coco the Clown in weightlifting, and then people will like you. That's what Paul tells, uh, God through Paul tells Timothy. They want, they want funny stories. In the Old Testament, they didn't believe the Christ that was being preached to them by the prophets. When Jesus Christ himself came in the flesh, the better part of the Jews, what does the Bible say, John chapter 1? He came to his own and, finish the sentence, his own knew him not. That's Jesus in the flesh. People do this all the time. 
I was born again at 26. And so you run around telling all the people you love, oh, Jesus is wonderful, believe in Jesus, and they think, ah, you're, you're, you're crazy. Or they'll say something like this. Well, if you could bring Jesus here now, like get him here now, if I could see Jesus, I would believe Jesus. What do you think about that? No. No, you wouldn't. No, you would not. Here, the whole generation of Jews saw Jesus. He's walking, talking around. He's doing miracles. They're eating manna from heaven. They don't believe. Seeing's not believing. A guy could come back from the dead. If you won't believe the Bible about Christ, you won't be believe a, a guy coming back from the dead. Faith is a gift of God. So even when Christ was there, they didn't believe him. Now, what's the crowning event that proves that Jesus is the Messiah? What's the crowning event? Do you know what it is? It's the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection, and not just any old resurrection. There were people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. And there were people in the New Testament. Lazarus was raised. The widow's son from Nain was raised. Jesus' resurrection is unique because he's raised as a firstfruits, never to die again as a representative of his, of his people. But ordinarily, people don't rise from the dead. The crowning achievement to prove that Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, for the Jews, is the resurrection from the dead. And what does that prove? That his sacrifice was accepted by God the Father and that he's reversed the curse for sin. What's the wages of every sin? Death. This is why people are afraid of death. I know you could say, well, I'm not afraid of death, and blah, 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 I'm not afraid of death. Oh, yeah, you're afraid of death. You're afraid of death. I've watched a lot of people die. You're afraid of death. I've been told I was going to die at age 44. People are afraid of death. Even Christians are afraid of death. Right? It's an enemy. It's the final enemy. Christ rises from the dead, taking away that curse, testifying to us that when we die, when our loved ones die, it's not the end. Did the Jews believe the preaching of Jesus by the apostles after the resurrection of Christ? No, that's the whole passage. I know it's just thematically. And so these Jews are essentially saying to Paul and to Christ, the reason we're rejecting you is because Jesus is not a good Jew. That Jesus is against the, 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 the law of Moses. And what their accusation against the Apostle Paul was this. This Paul preaching this Jesus is preaching against the law of Moses. He's preaching against circumcision. He preaches against the temple. And he brings Gentiles into the court of the Jews defiling the temple. That's what they're claiming. Jesus was a bad Jew. Jesus was against the law of God. Jesus was against the Jewish customs, just like his preacher. That's the accusation. What's the facts? In our passage, the Apostle Paul is proving or trying to prove to his fellow Jews that he's not a bad Jew, that Jesus is not a bad Jew, Jesus isn't against the law of Moses, he's not against the law of Moses. In fact, this is what he's trying to, to, to write. He's trying to convince his fellow Jews that it is fidelity to the Jews and fidelity to the Bible of the Jews to believe in Jesus. That's what he's trying to prove to them. And how does he start off in chapter 22, in the end of chapter 21? He speaks to them in what? In Hebrew. There's a guy, I won't tell you his name, Sure, I will. Nelson Mandela. I don't often quote Nelson Mandela. Um, Nelson Mandela said this. 
He said, if you speak to a person in a, a language they understand, it goes to their head. Speak to them in their mother tongue, and it goes to them where? In their heart. The Apostle Paul speaks to them in Hebrew to show them he's a Jew and that he loves the Jews. Sometimes people think like Christian preachers, and you do this, if you have family members, let's say you're not a Christian or you, you're a Christian, you have non-family members, they think you're telling them about Jesus because you hate them. If I hated people and I, I really hated them, I don't hate anybody, but if I hated them, would I ever tell them about Jesus? No, I'd shut my mouth. Why do I want to get kicked in the teeth by a person I hate? I wouldn't tell you about Jesus. Why does he tell them about Christ? Because he loves them. He speaks to them in their mother tongue, and he's saying to them, I am a Jew. Christ is a Jew. The Puritans would say a Jew sits at the right hand of glory in the Christ. And so he, he's showing solidarity with them. He says, and I want to say Romans chapter 9, Paul does, it's a hypothetical. He says, I would even give up my own salvation for what? For the Jews. So he speaks to them in a common language, and then he calls the Jews. He's trying to prove to them it is the most Jewish thing to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the Jews. And then he, he, he calls them what? Fathers and what? Brothers. What, was just, what were these Jews trying to do to the Apostle Paul like five seconds earlier than this? They're trying to beat him to death. Let me ask you a question. You ready? If someone was physically beating the stuffing out of you, I mean, they're doing it, and then they get stopped by the Roman authorities from actually dispatching you. Is the thought that rises up in your mind, in your heart, I love these folks so much, father, brother? No, what rises up in your heart? Man, I wish you'd be pitched off a roof. You just tried to kill me. But he doesn't say that. He calls them fathers and brothers. What do you call that, beloved? You call that love. You call that faith. There's many Christian mothers and fathers, many of them, who have unconverted children. And the kids don't want to hear it. And the mothers and fathers do what? Every night for their whole life. Pray and cry, pray and cry, pray and cry, pray and cry. Am I not right with that? I'm totally right with that. Why? Because they want their kid, who they love more than anything, to know the Redeemer, to be forgiven, to be with them in heaven. That's why. This defense, I'm going sh- to be quiet after this. I have a ton more. This defense of the Apostle Paul, in the face of, he's been told by the Holy Spirit, when you go to Jerusalem, they're going to abuse you. When you go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And he doesn't stop. And he keeps going until he's dead. Beloved, the great message of the Bible is God loves sinners. He takes a man that's a converted sinner who's worthy of what, what, is, what, what is the Apostle Paul? What should the Apostle Paul get if he gets pure justice from God? Death. Death. He's a murderer. The Apostle Paul's holding the coats of Stephen saying, yeah, pick up the big rock over there. See the big rock? You ever watch a guy get stoned? You could go go on YouTube right now and watch people get stoned to death. 
I watched a video of, in Haiti, they call it a tire. They put a tire on you and then they set you on fire. The Apostle Paul was, he deserves to die. In the face of God's justice, what does Paul deserve? Death. What does Christ give Paul? Everything. Beloved, he's transformed. He's transformed. He goes to people that are wicked, awful sinners just like him and says, there's hope in Christ. None of us are apostles. Most of us are not preachers. But if you're a Christian, your whole life is a walking, talking token of God's mercy on sinners. And out of love, you tell people, and most of the people are going to tell you to go pound sand. But you don't stop giving away Christ, hoping that God the Holy Spirit would rescue some. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.